Good morning. I'm Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Summit. Welcome. Um, I wanted to just first start off uh, this morning uh, with just the encouragement that I had this week when I went to our student time. Our student ministry met on Wednesday night on the square. and It was just a time for prayer, from hearing from uh, our team that went to Nepal, from, from, uh, from, from oh goodness gracious, <laughs> where did you go? Help me out. Was it Costa? Australia, Papua New Guinea. There we go. <laughs> Jesse, I just lost all the, all the countries that we're in. Um, and, and hearing our students just kind of gather and pray. Um, I was really excited about that. I was standing in the back. In fact, I got there a little late, and somebody was standing in the doorway, so I kind of stood outside for 15 minutes and watched. But <laughs> it was a fantastic thing. So I want to invite you to do what our students are doing. Come on in on Sunday to uh, next Sunday night for prayer for the nations. We're going to have, we're going to hear from our Nepal team, our India team. We're going to have a little bit of a QA. and a We're going to learn how to pray um, and, and, and kind of get directed that, that direction. Um, I want to let you know also that we have a Discover class next week. Actually, it's today at 11. It's going to be right across the hall from the coffee um, at 11 o'clock. So if you've been kind of new and want to kind of know a little bit more about what's going on, just go to that. Um, my voice. So let me get to what I really need to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm stumbling over myself, and here's the reason. Uh, I yelled all day yesterday because I'm a 7th and 8-year-old eight, eight girls soccer coach. And, and take heart, I was not yelling at the referees. I was yelling at the girls. So I've, I've been a little off because I didn't realize. I got to the end of that, and I could barely talk at all. And I thought, I have to do a sermon tomorrow. I can't even talk. So I woke up this morning, so if you just bear with me a little bit. I would appreciate that very much. Um, my seven and eight year, my, my seven year old that, that I'm coaching, Abby. Um, so she started playing soccer when she was five or six, and I love soccer. I'm glad glad my girls uh, are playing. Um, but I, I taught her how to kick. Um, she had one season kind of under her belt. We started the next season, and she thought she had had it kind of figured out, right? And so I was like, Hey, we need to go out and we need to practice. And I'll show you how to kick with your laces and your instep because you pass with your instep and you kick with your laces for power. And basically, she just, at, at, at five or six, she said, I, I don't need to practice. I get it. I can do it. I'm good. And I was like, well, sweetie, there, there's a lot more to this than you understand. I mean, you, you just played a little bit. You don't understand all, all that's going on and how much is really involved. There's more to the game. There's, there's juggling, foot control. You've got to learn how to use your head, chest trap. You can use your shoulder in some circumstances, and you can learn to get really good. I, I know how to do all that. Okay. No need for practice, and, and she's good. She doesn't know what she doesn't know, right? I can't tell her. I mean, I tried. I, I'm trying to tell her, there's a lot more. Watch these professional pl soccer players. She's not interested. She already knows that she's, she's got it down. I can't convince her of any. I said, sweetie, there's just a lot more to it than you know. <laughs> That's exactly what's going on in our text today. We, the disciples, they think they know what's happening, and Jesus is like for the third time. You don't, you don't know what, what you're asking. You don't know what you don't know, but they will. And he tells them anyway. So let's kind of center in a little bit. Here's my statement for today, and then we have two points, not three. <laughs> we have two. Um, number one, or, or, or the overall statement is going to be, God-centered discipleship includes suffering and service. It just does. God-centered discipleship. The reason I say discipleship, ever since Mark chapter 8, verse 22, we've been seeing 
Here's what a disciple is like. Here's what a disciple is not like. Here's what a disciple is like. Here's what one is not like. And so today what we see is God-centered discipleship includes suffering and service. Now, I say that as a differentiation between man-centered discipleship to where it's just about us and we're at the center and Jesus is here to help us. And to get us to point A to B, we need a little push. Say, no, what we're going to see today is that discipleship is about Jesus. He's in the center. That's what we're going to see that the Bible presents us with. All right, so let's jump in together. Um, Verse 32. They were on the road going to Jerusalem, and that's important. And we see that Jesus is walking ahead of them, and that's important. He's leading the way, is what Mark is saying. He's leading the way to Jerusalem. And then there's this curious next verse, right? Well, do you see, see what the next verse says? It says, see, we're on the road to Jerusalem. He says, <clears throat> and then Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. That seems odd, doesn't it? I mean, they've walked with Jesus before. They're on, they're on the road to Jerusalem. What's the big deal? I puzzled over that. Amazed and afraid. Something is going on with Jesus, evidently. And maybe we see it in the response here because he pulls the 12 uh, aside and and he says, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This is the most in-depth account of the future Jesus has given so far. This is the third time that he's told his disciples about his impending death. But it's moving from theory to reality now. Right? The Jerusalem is where it's going to go down. And that's what they're on the road to now. This is what he came for. It's time. And maybe this is just a moment for Jesus to go, hey, Here we go. This is it. We're going. And the disciples see the urgency that's reflected in his demeanor and his focused state. And they're just amazed. And others are afraid. What are we about to walk into? Jerusalem's where it's going to go down. That's why we get the emphasis from Jesus. See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And from here forward, everything in the book of Mark is the last week of Jesus as he goes to his crucifixion. That's what he came for. He came to die, to lay down his life. And nobody takes it from him. He lays it down of his own free will. And so there's this escalation in the description of what will happen, not what might happen, not what is, you know, kind of, here's a possibility. He says, here's what will happen. And he, he lives a perfect life, and in response to his perfect life, He'll be mocked and spit upon and scourged and tortured with whips and rods, right? And and then murdered on purpose. He knows this. And still, he turns right into the path of the suffering. And what is happening is so much bigger than what the the disciples are aware of. They, They don't even have categories to fit it into. They think that they have some idea what to expect, that Jesus is their leader and he's the Messiah and, and he's gonna be, they're going to be part of this rebellion. He's the leader and they're part of this rebellion to throw off the Roman government and hopefully get the people of Israel to rise up against the government and, and they can proclaim independence from Rome. They're looking for this military leader, a political leader. 
And Jesus tells them again of his death. And it just doesn't seem to be registering. I don't know um, if, if you wear a, a seatbelt or not. You wear a seatbelt, right? Now you know you should. There are studies out there to prove that it's very safe. And so maybe you don't, maybe you do. But people who have been in a car accident do. Especially the ones that I've worked with in, in physical therapy. Because they've seen the reality. They've knew, they knew it in their head. But when they go to the other side and they see what happens in a motor vehicle accident, they click it. Because they've been face to face with it. That reality goes from, yeah, I've seen that. I know that's a good thing to do. I, I, I have an idea how that turns out to, I really have an idea of what can happen. And it's moved from theory to experience. And their life is different because of it. Their behavior is different because of it. That's, that's what is getting ready to happen. Because in John 14, 29, Jesus is telling his disciples again, and he says, very clearly, he says, you know what? Here's why I tell you these things before. So that if I tell you that before they take place, so that when they do come to pass, you will believe. It's not so that you'll be ready. It's not so that you'll have your ducks in a row. It's because I, I know that that's not really going to register with you. But when it does, you'll remember this, and you will believe. He wants their belief. Mark lets us know this, that his death is no accident. It's no surprise. It's not from the, the hands of the Romans or even the Jews that Jesus is subject to death. And he chose to walk from the safety of heaven in the royal palace into the den of lions, knowing full well what he signed up for. Ready to face it head on, and he runs into battle himself. So number one, suffering precedes glory. That's what we see. He came to suffer and die so that he might rescue a people for himself by reuniting them with God through his sacrifice for sin at the hands of men. And he is, he's reversing the curse from the beginning of the Bible. We've talked about that. We went through Genesis. It's from what happened in the beginning. He's reversing the curse. And this is the big, the huge, the apex of the step. And the disciples don't, don't get it yet. And they seem totally oblivious to what Jesus just said. I mean, look at this awkward interchange from verse 34 to verse 35, and Mark just kind of crams them together. We get Jesus talking about he'll be mocked and spit on and flogged and killed, and then after three days he will rise, and then James and John, remember there are no headings in the original, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come up to him and say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Heavy description I'm going to get beaten, mocked, scourged, and killed. And then James and John just kind of walk up, and it's like all they heard was, he will rise. And they walk up, kind of like my son used to do. Hey, Dad, whatever I'm about to ask, will you say yes? I don't know if you ever got that one. You know, it's just, I'm like, well, that's clever. So if you kind of lock me into that, and then I have to say yes, you can have whatever you want with my blessing. I see how that works. That's, that's great, son. Um, what are you going to ask me about? <laughs> Let me hear your parameters, you know. And that's what they're saying. Can, can one of us, like, sit at your, because we know this is wrong to ask. Can one of us sit at your left and one of us sit at your right in your glory? Like, whenever you've done all the hard stuff and all that, we've gotten through the rebellion. Can, can we sit, basically, can we be cabinet members to your presidency? 
can we be in power with you? Like, you're number one, and we'll like be number two. And Jesus is king, but we want to be right in there with you with power over the people. And strangely, Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't. He says, he's so patient. You, you don't know what you're asking. And they don't. It's like my son. You don't, you don't know what you're saying. Are you able, look at verse 38, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they answer without missing a beat, we are able. <laughs> really? Really? Do you think that they understand that the cup and the baptism from the Old Testament, and, and it's basically an allusion to suffering. Inside, the cup going in. Outside, baptism being dipped into. And it's always possible you'll walk through suffering. And in fact, the moment of Jesus' life that most displays glory, or God's glory through love and justice and mercy meeting is at the cross it's a moment of great suffering and there will be a person on Jesus's left and his right but it's going to be a thief not a disciple it's just not registering with them they're focused on their version of glory not his you ever do that I do. I think I know how it goes. I got enough information to be dangerous. See, the, the path for glory, as far as Jesus is concerned, goes straight through suffering. Not around it, not over it, but through it. And then he turns to him after saying, You don't know what you ask. And he says, prophetically, you will drink the cup that I drink, and you will be baptized with a baptism like mine. What do you learn from that? Suffering is a part of our walk as a disciple, especially in this earthly kingdom. It's inherent to the Christian life. And sometimes it is at the hand of a broken world when you walk through cancer and disease or evil broken relationships. Sometimes it's a result of the sin of others. Sometimes it's a result of our own sin or foolish choices. Sometimes it's the invitation of Jesus to share in his sufferings. And it's a fierce grace. And we're shaped into the image of of our loving Savior, King Jesus. And so, given that, I would say, if you are in a valley of suffering, don't waste your suffering. How you go through it is a distinguishing mark of your Christianity. It's a mark of your faith. You just think of the book of Job. And I know, Jamie, that's easy for you to say. Yeah. Maybe that's why they were amazed and afraid. 
been in a lot of hospitals lately. The story of Job is it's like the devil just says, hey, I've been wandering the earth, and, and God says to him, have you considered my servant Job? And the entire book is about the suffering of Job. Why? Was it to get something from God? Was it? No, it was just to know that we love God for God. That he is that valuable. That he is that worth it. Do we see, do we see him like that? That it's, that it's not for what he does, that it is for who he is. That's why the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, 10 can say something like this. He says that I may know him. Right? That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and I may become like him in his death. He says, but I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means impossible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What is he talking about? It's the way of Christianity. It's not, it does not appeal to the masses. It just doesn't. That doesn't preach. Not in America. I want to be delivered from it, not unto it. There's so much we don't understand. Jesus says things like, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. There's got to be something we don't see. There's something bigger than what's going on and what's presented to us. Yes. Yes. There is. See, the resurrection is about more than the disciples see of just forming a resistance against Rome. It's more than just about conquering our own fears or overcoming uh, what holds us back. It's about a cosmic reconciliation uh, of all things over all history. And the disciples are just starting to catch up to that. They're just starting to see that. Now, what I'm, I, I tend to do is to look at the disciples and point my finger and go, get, can't you get it? Look, he's told you three times. You guys are just knuckleheads. Even though they've walked with him physically like for almost three years, more closer than I've ever been. And so maybe the question I need to ask instead is what am I missing right now? that I don't see? Where is my pride making me miss it? Because we do this, the same thing. Why is it, am I going through this? Why am I, why does this, what do you think you may be missing in your walk with the Lord? What are you missing in your suffering? See, our, our sin blinds us. Just like the disciples, we don't see Jesus as he is or what he's doing. We see him as we would like to see him. That's what James and John are doing. And we have our, our own version of that. I'll serve you if. I won't ever do that again if. We want God to fulfill our wishes and our desires and crush our rebellions and solve our problems. And simply what we see today is that's using Jesus, not serving, trusting, or loving Jesus. And it requires zero relationship with God. 
and it isn't seeking one. It's simply a transactional agreement. I want us to see the difference. I find myself kind of defaulting in that from time to time. Our sin puts us at the center instead of Jesus. That Jesus is here to help us accomplish our will. And it's just wrong. All kinds of things are going wrong here. From their blindness, it, it leads the disciples to desire to be served rather than to serve. Right? They, they want to be number two in command. They think they're ready to rule and to reign. They think that they're strong enough to save themselves, that they're deceived into thinking, we are able. <laughs> we are able to follow you, Jesus. Of course, the Roman guards show up, and they scatter. They thought they were, but they were deceived, as are we. So is there a remedy for this posture the disciples are displaying? How do you... How do you see what you can't see? We need fresh eyes. Not only to who he is, but what he came to do. Let's hold on to that thought. Number two, serving displays greatness. So the other, uh, look at verse 30, uh, 41. The other disciples are around. And when the ten heard it, they, they became indignant at James. And John. Why do you think that is? James and John just asked to be second in command on your right and your left. And the others are like, we're right here. <laughs> we're, we're right here. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and it's not because they feel less worthy. I think it's because they didn't think of it first. Ah, I should have said that. Ah, he beat us to it, you know. They think they're so special there on the transfiguration with Jesus walking down here. And, and this is James and John. You know, Peter's like, I was there too. And he didn't get to say it, and they, they thought of it first. And so there's this kind of dissension, this division that starts to ensue, which is common among Jesus' followers. Then and today, the disciples' agendas are bumping into one another, and their egos are offended. In verse 42, Jesus calls them together. It's time for unity. Come here. Come to me. That's what needs to happen, by the way, when that happens. <laughs> Side note. We all need to go to Jesus. And here's what he says. He says to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them but it shall not be so among you. Or as the NIV likes it, not so with you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So James and John and the other disciples are, are missing what the kingdom of God is about. They're desiring to treat others the way the world treats them, the Gentiles. They desire to be served rather than to serve. They think it's better. And Jesus simply says, not so with you. 
Can you say that with me? Can you say not so with you? Let's say it together. Not so with you. That's what he says to us. We're not to be like the world. It doesn't work like that in God's kingdom, he says. And God's kingdom is here. That's chapter one, right? The kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It's coming. It's not in its fullness, but it is here. That's why you're seeing miracles and healings and demons are being cast out. Jesus brought the kingdom, and yet we're still in the earthly kingdom. So we've got a kingdom within a kingdom. Which kingdom do we bow to? Jesus' kingdom. So we live in Jesus' kingdom while being set in the kingdom of the world. He says, live as unto God. The way God calls us to live. And he never says, don't desire greatness. Don't have any power. Don't have any influence. He doesn't say that. He does say, for whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. That's what he says. And so he redefines greatness. This is, he's done this before. Back up a chapter, right, if you remember. And then that he, he doesn't only teach it, but he models it. And the ultimate way that he, he serves is by giving his life as a ransom. And what that means is simply an exchange for God's people instead of. So a quick question. Do you really believe that being great consists of serving others? I mean, do you, you believe what Jesus says, right? Do you? Being other-centered. Is there something kind of screaming in the back of your ear or in the back of your head? Are you kidding? That's how you get taken advantage of. People are going to know you're called to be a servant, and they're just going to wear you out. They're going to be over at your house all the time. They're going to invite their friends. You're going to grocery bills going to go up. You're going to feel. I'm not saying you throw down all your boundaries. But I'm saying that gets in our head, right? You're going to get taken advantage of. You're called to serve. How do we do that? Did you know that secular studies are, are proving now that helping others and not concentrating on yourself leads to feelings of joy and it actually fights actively depression? Not only makes you feel better, it's actually good for you. <laughs> it's hardwired in there. Aristotle even wrote, happiness is achieved by loving rather than in being loved. I'm like, what? What? Berkeley University published a paper on it. I, I read what Time Magazine, Psychology Today. Just Google it. Not right now. Just Google it. It's amazing. Jamie, that sounds really great to be a servant. The world just doesn't teach us that. After years and years of, of kind of being programmed by our, our culture, we have to earn our way. We have to get good grades. We have to earn our reputation. We have to work hard. Greatness doesn't, is just not thrust upon you. It doesn't happen to lazy people. Greatness doesn't just find you. You have to go for it. You have to be unique. You have to be a diamond shining in the rough. You have to prove yourself. And then, What? I mean, we all want to be great. We all want to see change. We all want to evoke 
some, be, be different and make the world a better place. We want to matter. Here's the thing. Sin just messes it up. It skews that holy desire and it makes it selfish so that our idea of greatness is to have people look at us or to want to be us, <laughs> to see us as great. Appreciate all we've done and how hard we've worked. And so that's what we think greatness is. And Jesus says, no, stay low. Stay low and serve. Watch. Now, how do you really feel about that, what Jesus says? You don't have to tell me right now. That'd be, that'd be awkward. But how do you really feel about that? What's really in our hearts? Do we really believe what Jesus says? I know, I know you'll give me a good head nod, and you'll love the nobility of this suggestion that we should serve our fellow man. But when it comes to living it out and living in God's kingdom while still in this kingdom, how does that sit with us? Paul Heck uh, reminded me a few weeks ago, he says, you don't know how you feel about being a servant until somebody treats you like one. I thought, that's insightful. <laughs> you don't really know how you feel about it until somebody treats you like one. Now, when you're ready and you're like, oh, I'm going to serve, I'm going to do it, you're, you're like, yeah, look, I'm doing this. And then somebody actually treats you like that, and you're like, well, hold on. I don't know about all that. You, do you know who I am? I, I, I had that. I'm, I was a, I'm a physical therapist. I go into people's homes. I used to do it all the time, and there was one lady named Miss Bessie, and she lived by herself, and her family didn't take good care of her, and I was coming in there for some physical therapy treatment, and she basically treated me like uh, she hired me to clean her house. She was like, hey, could you bring me that? Hey, while you're over there, could you like just, just kind of put all that in the trash? And hey, could you bring me some of this? And I'm like, I'm here to do your therapy. Hey, while you're in the bathroom, could you clean the toilet? I'm not kidding. And I'm like, it's just so weird. I found myself cleaning this lady's toilet, you know. And I would come three times a week for about a month and a half or so. And the next thing you know, I'm taking her garbage out, you know. And, and, and what happened was I, I didn't like it. That's not my job. You ever said that? That's not my job description. I don't have to do that. I didn't. I could have said, no, let your son that never comes by do it. I mean, I could have said that. That's not my job. I'm here to work on your therapy, and that's it. So let me stay in my silo and do what I get paid to do. Do you know who I am? I, I liked serving when I got credit for it or when I felt like I was, I, I was perceived as a good guy leaning down to serve. Oh, he's such a good guy, he's serving. He didn't have to. And so you get credit for that one. But when you walk into a 95-year-old lady's house that's taking care of herself the best she can, and she don't care what anybody thinks, and she says, hey, will you go get that? I'm like, hold on. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you understand. You need to let me serve in a way that brings glory to me, not the way you just boss me around, because that, that's, that's not the same thing. Do you see the difference? It got to my heart, man. It messed me up. It was so, exp it exposed me. In my serving, I was being served. If that makes sense. That's tricky. 
that's, that's deceptive. I was doing the stuff, it all looked right, but it was so that I would feel better about myself and other people would think I was awesome. That's not the way Jesus is going about that. So we're quick to want to be served instead of doing the serving. And it's about the heart. It's always about the heart. Jesus has a serious call here. He takes greatness and he flips it on its head. As far as the world looks at greatness, James and John are looking at greatness as the world looks at it. So do we. We have to be deprogrammed. We have to have our minds transformed by, by the renewing of our minds, right? We've got to be transformed. Romans 12 tells us. Can you imagine? Just think with me a second. Can you imagine what the culture of this church would look like if every single person lived like what Jesus is talking about here? If all our hearts were transformed to the degree that we wanted to serve others because we loved Jesus that much. Not so that we'd be seen, not so that our church would be known as the serving church, not, not any of that, not for a name for ourselves, not to feel better about ourselves, but simply because that's an identity that we've been baptized into through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are servants, and we're following Jesus. And he says, hey, like I live, go do that. What would it look like? Not one person would walk in here and feel unwelcomed or like nobody spoke to them or that they weren't part of a family or that they mattered. Not one. Guess what? That's what the church is supposed to look like. That's what he's, and he washes their feet just a little later. King! And my emotional response is, that I think I'm getting hit with three at one time right now, is that he would do that, that I don't do that, and that we could do that. It was hopeful, and it's sad, and, and, and all that just rolled into one, and I'm like, Jesus, help us. That's awesome and scary at the same time, you know? And this is a call that he gives as he is turning his face to the cross. Certain death. And he gives the ultimate example, and he says, you know, I'm really going to do this in the ultimate fashion in about a week. But right now, that's not what greatness looks like, guys. It's about staying low. It's about humility. It's about your life for others. I'm going to give my life next week, and I want you right now to live like this. It's the exact opposite posture that his disciples are displaying in their conversation in 35 through, through 45. My life for you. That's how Jesus lived, living unto God and seeing that as reward. Do we see that as reward or do we see that as sacrifice? I guess I'll go do this serving. I guess I will. It's my duty. I've got to. I begrudgingly serve. You think that is that how Jesus went to the cross? I guess I'll, I'll have to die. Because he did have to die. There's no other way. If he doesn't die for us, if he's not the penalty for pay, pay the penalty for our sin, if he doesn't receive all the wrath of God on himself, we don't make it. So he had to go. You think he went with the attitude and the heart of I guess I have to because God's glory depends on it. Because Hebrews tells us it was for the joy set before him. And if going to the cross is the way that he ultimately serves us, shouldn't we serve from joy instead of a, 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 an obligatory obedience? 
I'm, I'm, you know, answer the question. So, yes. And so I say, go after greatness. Jesus' definition of greatness. Embrace, and by embracing the suffering servant is the only way to break free from this blinding sin that serving others is drudgery. That's how that happens. He sets us free to be able to serve selflessly with joy and not begrudgment, to serve from rest and not guilt, to serve from blessing and not from duty, to misunderstanding that the Christian life is something you got to do, not something you get to do. You, you, you see what's happening? That Jesus is getting down to the foundation. And the disciples' blindness to Jesus is highlighted in the, in the, in the very last story. They were blind to the depth of Jesus' call and his purpose where he was going, even though they spent all this time with him. They were in church. They went to Bible study. And their stance of, we are able, is contrasted with Bartimaeus, the blind beggar. You see what Mark's doing there? <laughs> He's putting two postures next to each other. The posture of the disciples and the posture of of a blind beggar on the outskirts of town who is unable to do much more for himself except his occupation, which is being at the mercy of others. Nobody wants to be that guy. That guy's not great. There ain't nothing great about that guy. And he hears the Messiah's in town, and perhaps he's gotten wind that he can heal. He's quite aware of his need. And he realizes that his only hope is found in the son of David. The son of David, the Redeemer. The one that all of Israel has been looking for. Another name for Messiah. And he cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And he gets told like the little children over the last couple of weeks, it, you, you see this theme of helplessness and dependence and, and, and you're not important. Get the children away. Jesus is important. We just need to speak to the religious elite. We need to speak to the people that have money, the people of means, the decision makers. Uh, you know, we need to just the, just the important people. And he gets told, be quiet. Get back. And they rebuked him and told him to be silent. And what did he do? I love somebody that's got no hope but one place. It says, and he cried out all the more. He cried out all the more. And that's beautiful and at the same time unnerving for a guy like me. Because I'm a peacemaker. I don't like controversy. I'm like, I'd have probably been with the disciples. Hey, come on. Come on, bro. Chill. We'll get to you. He don't care. But guess what? Sometimes things need to be shaken up. And he knows his need is great, and there's only one place to go. And Jesus is his only hope. And if he is silent, he may be passed by. And if Jesus truly is the Messiah, then maybe, maybe, just one more yell. So Jesus, he stops. And he asks the blind man, get this, and he asks the blind man the same question that he asks the disciples. 10 verses earlier. What do you want me to do for you? Except there's a different answer. 
because this guy knows his place. (laughs) He knows he is in need. And like a helpless, dependent child, the blind man says simply, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And immediately he recovers his sight and follows him on the way to the cross. One week. I think that's why Bartimaeus' name made it in there and a lot of other people didn't because there's only one week left and he was there at the end and they're like, oh yeah, you remember Bartimaeus. That was Bart. Mark wrote it down. The irony of this story is that the only one that really saw Jesus was the blind man. And it funny how that works. And he has the clearest vision of them all. He knows how to approach Jesus. He just simply says, help, help me see. You're the only one that can do this. I don't even know what I don't know. And this is the good news of the gospel. You're not hopeless. Even when you think you are, or even when you're blind to the fact that you aren't, you have no idea how hopeless you are. He said, just come to him. And this is the posture we're to have instead of what the disciples have. So how well are we serving one another, church? Are we generous with our time? Are we generous with our money? Are we generous with our abilities? Are we more interested in being served than serving? And we finish with this. Until you embrace the servant Jesus, until you see what he has done for you in the gospel by laying his life down for you, then never live out your servant identity. It'll only be another chore, another duty. But when you do see that serving others is serving Jesus, and you treasure what he did do for us, then your blindness is revealed. And your strength comes from the Spirit, and you start to understand how serving others leads to greatness in the kingdom of God, and you really start to believe that. And you exercise that, and you walk in that. And joy starts to explode at opportunity. And that's where we find ourselves. And so our challenge today is, Jesus, remove the scales of our heart and our blindness and help us to see that serving is greatness. Let's pray together. We have three directives that are on the screen up here. I want you to stay where you are and pray. We're going to spend one or two minutes together in prayer. The worship team is going to come up here. And then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. I just pray that God would move. That we would see. We would be changed. Let's pray together.